Hello and welcome to Breaking Social. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're excited to be speaking to Liz Matthews and Jordan Mitchell, who are the co-founders of Good Culture. Good Culture works with talent and brands on campaigns that go beyond the realms of traditional PR by supporting them with actively contributing to culture. Whether it's casting a nationwide campaign or transforming an international brand's image, they encourage a truly progressive media where everyone can see themselves represented in the biggest publications. In this episode, we speak to Liz and Jordan about how to build a cultural strategy for brands of any size, their views on cancel culture, and why there's no excuse to not have cultural relevance as a brand. So Liz, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Do you want to give us uh, a little bit of a backstory as to how you both met and how you came to create Good Culturing? Yeah. Um, how back do you want to go? I mean, Liz and I go back decades, <laughs> we don't go we? go in. So <laughs> I, I met Jordan um, as an intern back in the day. I mean, I wouldn't actually be comfortable putting a year on it because I we, we normally kind of work it around the age of our children. But I, I, I would say maybe sort of 13, 14 years ago, I met Jordan. And that's probably about right, isn't it, as an intern and had a lovely, lovely sort of six month working time together. And then she went to work for someone else. And I was very, very small at the time with me and one other. But, you know, she left a lasting impression. And I basically went around trying to get her back from there on in. <laughs> and we finally managed to do that perhaps another kind of two years after that. And then Jordan came back full time and really is a massive success story because, you know, really worked her way up from intern to managing director of our old agency. And then a year ago, almost to the day, we found a good culture. So we're equal partners in good culture. So we've known each other yeah, for some like 13, 14 years, it's been it's been a lot. And we're, we're like, you know, we're sort of chosen family, which is lovely because it's not like the actual family, which is, you know, really annoying and you can't do anything about them. It's like we want to spend time with each other, which is lovely. And we are we are as good sort of professional pals as we are personal pals. So it's it's a dream really to work with someone that you sort of trust and respect that much. And Jordan, do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience with meeting Liz as well? Yeah, I mean... So, oh my God, this sounds like I'm going to be full fangirling now. Let's just, let's just get into it. I read an article with Liz in Company Magazine and I just fell in professional love with her. Her story around how she launched this agency and at the time they were sort of, Liz Matthews PR was really disruptive because they looked after like the coolest talent, you know, the Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, the Alexa Chung's, the Daisy Lowe's when they were really at the cusp of just that whole phenomenon. They were almost kind of influencers and not in the reductive term, but sort of people shaping culture and creating impact before we even knew what influencers were, before Instagram was even a thing. And so Liz was really the driving force behind that. And I just really felt quite um, inspired by her journey. I also read that she got gifted a Mulberry bag and I was like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I, need to, I, need to, I need to work here, but get free clothes. This sounds great. Um, but I was just really, really curious by, by what she'd built and really interested to kind of find more. So I was at, at the time, I was at London College of Fashion doing a degree 
in kind of fashion promotion with no real defined route of what I wanted to be. And so I was just interning at loads of places. I was interning at magazines. I went to InStyle, PR agencies, and then Liz, who's a publicist and felt like the only kind of publicist at that time. I hadn't heard of publicists before then. And so I kind of waddled in um, like seven months pregnant being like, listen, I can still uh, I can still take the mail down to the post office and I can be helpful. Um, it's just going to take me a bit longer. And I'm also wearing like nine inch heel stilettos because I was in <laughs> denial of being pregnant. Um, and we just got on like I've never known anyone with a sense of humour like Liz. She is like the most hardest working person, but also she plays super hard and she just made work really really fun and so yeah it was almost kind of like a real meeting of sort of spirits in a way and yeah just felt like my mentor and someone that would kind of take me on this journey in a really fun exciting way and it has always felt like that to be honest amazing and and Liz what made you want to set up good culture so I think Jordan and I had spoken about where we were at. I mean, the pandemic sort of gave everybody a new lens on everything. And Jordan had come back from having her third child to an agency that was actually quite different to the one she'd left six months before. And we had this agreement where Jordan would go and have six months maternity leave and we would leave her alone. And we were just doing kind of bigger, braver, more disruptive things, as has always been our pattern, actually, when you kind of track what we've been up to. And and I kind of think that it was a, it was a natural point at which to kind of review where we were at and what we were doing and, you know, things that we enjoyed and things that we didn't enjoy. And we knew that we wanted to have purpose at the heart of what we did. We both felt very strongly about that because I think when you ask someone unrelated to this industry what their view of PR and publicity is, it's quite shallow. It's quite sort of fluffy. And actually, we were... We were really kind of doing good work and and work that contributed to culture and we felt like the sort of tag was a bit undeserved and we didn't want to be chip on shoulder you don't get us we just kind of needed to define for ourselves and others the work we'd done because quite a lot of people would say to us you know you're not PRs because you've done a this and a that and they would literally call out some of our work so it felt like a natural point to go and also that decade or more of working together at a senior level, that felt like it needed recognising as well. I only called the agency after me because it was literally, you know, baby brain, do what it says on the tin, but that didn't sort of feel relevant anymore. And so we set about trying to find a name that was also a behaviour, if that makes sense. So good culture, although, you know, my son is quick to point out it's also like a yoghurt. Thanks, Bram. Um, apart from it being a yogurt, is 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 a way of being it. Those two words together make make you feel something. They make you feel responsible and like you know, like you're showing up to make a difference. So, good culture sort of came about embryonically in, in lockdown, and you know, we really wanted it to be a new business. Obviously, LMPR was the springboard, you know, and and it helped set the way, but it's not a rebrand. Lots and lots of companies, not just in our space, but 
every which way we're rebranding, which felt like sort of same again, but new coat of paint. Whereas this is a completely new business with new behaviors, new team, new structure. We've, you know, we've parted ways with some clients, we've welcomed in others, but everything is really, really, really important to us that everyone we work with shares those same attributes of purpose and, you know, positively contributing to culture. So we always kind of come to work full of energy, but it's just been this new kind of level of energy because it sort of feels like all of our networking over years and years and years is finally making sense. And when we're describing who it is and what we're doing, everybody gets it now. So it's it's actually quite liberating in a way. Right. I think that makes sense. And and Jordan, what sort of brands and clients do you work with at the moment? It's a, it's a real mix. And like what Liz said, that kind of central narrative are kind of brands who want to sort of show up in culture with real purpose. So one brand who we've gone on a real journey with is Victoria's Secret. And actually, that's kind of an account that's been spearheaded by by Liz. But I think if you can imagine, uh, there's no greater transformation story than um, certainly with our clients than Victoria's Secret, because they went on a on a real huge journey. And the reason that we were able to change the dial on that was pure play cultural strategy and kind of culturally sympathetic casting. So I think, Liz, you're kind of best place to speak to that because you've been sort of knee deep in Victoria, you're fresh from LA. So you've kind of got the the most up-to-date spill on that. I think our clients are sort of luxury fashion and lifestyle. So we've got brands like Skims and Good American who fundamentally showed up and changed the way that we think about inclusive and diverse casting. Um, Emma Greed, who is founder of both of those brands and partner, was the person who set up the in-between size jeans and Skims and Good American, you know, use incredibly diverse casting. So that felt really, really exciting to kind of work with, with those clients. And like Jordan said, we've got a bit of track record in brand transformation. What we try and do is kind of take brands from the sector that they're in and elevate them out of that sector and into culture. Um, so you would argue that Skims is not a, Skims don't consider themselves a lingerie brand. They're a culture brand and they create this sort of feeling in this community. VS is a challenging uh, was a challenging client in the beginning because I worked with Rosie Hunston Whiteley in the in the beginning and knew firsthand some of the stories that that came out of that as a brand. But the opportunity won us over in the end because you know on Instagram alone they have almost eighty million women, and so the opportunity to course correct and share a different narrative. They have an ambition to be the number one advocate for women globally, and they can do that because of their scale. And actually, when we started to reach out to collective members, women who we hoped would change their corner of culture and and sort of be better together, absolutely everybody was up for the challenge because they saw the opportunity in it, which was which was brilliant. So we have onboarded Naomi Osaka, Megan Rapino, Amanda Decadene, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, uh, Hayley Bieber, Bella Hadid. Paloma Alcesa. So we are sort of building this kind of awesome group of women who will do individual 
things on their own, but also will work as a collective to, you know, challenge the brand. What what are your policies on inclusivity? What are your sustainability policies? So that feels like a behemoth of a of a brand to work with. But you know, it will be a long journey, but we're already a year in and things are changing, which is incredibly fulfilling. Being able to use our network and our creativity to have sort of, you know, that level of change societally it's really important. It's important for my daughter. It's actually important for my sons mm. as well, you know, so it's an important conversation to have. And it's really nice that we can, you know, be heard, you know, that the, the board is now majority female. They have uncoupled from L Brands, which was the parent company. It's, it's a different it's a different company altogether. So it feels really exciting. Um, we've also got new opportunities with Flannels, which is a new client of ours. And again, that is an amazing brand, slightly misunderstood brand, a brand that has an enormous opportunity and huge scale. And, and it's going to be exciting to see what we can do there. They're the same people who own Sports Direct. And I think to see the turnaround of that brand in the last year has been phenomenal. So yeah, we're working on some pretty exciting stuff at the moment. Something that you both touched on there is, I mean, obviously culture, but you know, Liz, you said there that Skims is a culture brand. Um, both you, Liz and Jordan, you both mentioned that a lot of the work that you do with clients is, you know, trying to contribute to culture. Just so that everyone listening completely understands what it is that we're talking about. Liz, in your words, what is culture or contributing to culture? It's a great question and it's different things to different people and actually in our new podcast showing up we ask every guest to define what showing up is Mm. because it's every single person that we've asked has got a different answer to that. For me, it's using your platform. And that doesn't mean you've got to be famous and have millions of followers. It just means using your voice. We we are in a position of privilege. I'm very, very conscious of that. And using your voice and your privilege to speak out on things that matter to you and matter to others. Um, And I think brands behavior, it's not enough to just sell to us. We are as consumers, completely swamped with choice, completely swamped with choice. And so the brands that are cutting through are the ones that are showing up for communities that ordinarily are forgotten about. You know, that whole thing of you can't be what you can't see. Advertising, traditional advertising in fashion and beauty was so one-dimensional. You know, the VS kind of impossible idea of beauty that you had to look like that, that your body had to look like that, that your, you know, hair and your skin and your, it was absolutely ridiculous and it was really toxic actually and it made women feel like shit and then all of a sudden skimmed turns up with this democratization of a category that we all need we all need underwear we all should have it be comfortable and flattering and the idea that in this one size category you know you could wear it from a size small or extra small to a a four times XL and it be this one piece of kit. Innovation and technology is 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 absolutely at play here and they're an incredible sort of scientific innovation brand, but they make people feel included. They make people in their advertising campaigns and, and on Instagram feel like they can be part of a gang and part of a community. And I think that that is really, really important and it's what's made them you know, have the valuation that they've that they've had in the, the last couple of years. I mean, you look at their trajectory and their path. I mean, and it is absolutely incredible. Good American is the same. And in many ways, Good American being slightly older than Skims set the path for that kind of brand behavior. You know, why can't we see in our advertising 
curvy women. Also, like, what's a curvy woman? We look after a plus-size model who is between a 10 and a 12. So I think for us, it's we like working with brands that challenge the norms and make everybody feel seen and included. And we have worked with beauty brands and fashion brands who really challenge what normal views of beauty are and and hopefully everybody can see themselves in the campaigning that's across all of our brands by the way and if it's not then that's the behavior that we bring in so we'll work with you know brands who have perhaps had a bit of a boring traditional view of casting and advertising and we'll make sure it's disruptive and we'll make sure it's kind of you know inclusive and diverse so we kind of operate in that way across across everything we do. But yeah, very long-winded answer of saying, stop selling to us in just the normal way and, and make us feel seen and included, make us feel part of something. So Jordan, where do you start on building a cultural strategy for some of the huge brands that Liz has mentioned just there, like whether it's Victoria's Secret or Good American or Skims, does it... Did you ever find it intimidating to tackle such huge undertakings or is it something that comes naturally to the both of you? Uh, what does that What does that look like for you? Yeah, I think it really does vary from the different sort of need states of a brand. But more and more, the kind of briefs that we're kind of taking on and the route to storytelling is through entertainment properties and creating something that people want to engage with beyond the the product and I think Liz talks about this when she says taking brands out of category because we build narrative and infrastructure around brands that exist beyond the product so for some clients that might take the form as as a podcast for instance which we did for a brand called Bellstaff and it was really about making them part of a cultural conversation so beyond the product actually it's just about associating them with with really interesting changes makers and people who've got interesting things to say so for that in that instance we worked with Reggie Yates as the host we cast talent like Riz Ahmed, Naomi Harris, Emma Mackey, a whole kind of host of of different sort of people who have got interesting narrative to tell and then we created fame around each episode and kind of frame around the sort of the franchise as it were with Victoria's Secret again we've done a podcast series we've done a lot of video um, content as well to support that so I think for for each brand there is a sort of a different narrative and a different audience that we need to kind of access and then creating a strategy whether it be through entertainment and so Ted Baker for instance we did a whole sort of year-long entertainment strategy which was all about just giving people amazing experiences and then them being the advocates of the brand sharing their experiences on the social channels so there isn't a sort of one set ecosystem that we go okay well this is the blueprint it's very much determined by the need states of the brands and how we can help them as individuals sort of show up in culture that kind of marry with the brand personality as well. And why do you believe that it's important for a brand to hold cultural relevance? Because there's a stat here, culturally relevant brands are basically generate 2.5 times more sales. I mean, it always ladders up. As much as we talk about how people feel and how we want brands to to represent the community and the, the customer they're trying to speak to, we also fundamentally understand business. And so we get commerce and understand that ultimately for us to continue showing up each day and and creating impact there does need to be a material sort of difference and impact in terms of finances for for a brand and so culturally relevant brands just perform so much better so Liz has mentioned skims 
they have been valued at 3.2 billion in a trajectory of two to three years. And that's not a typical kind of growth curve if you think about how generally brands grow over a period of time. But culturally relevant brands, when you think about the Supremes, when you think of the palaces of this world, they're able to sort of have a trajectory that's exponentially more than their peers because they are relevant. And so they create this kind of hype and demand because people feel part of something. And so that's why it's important because it has a material difference and impact in the business. And Liz, what role does social media play in a cultural strategy in your opinion? Oh God, my relationship with social media changes daily. I mean, I I sort of see the incredible additive nature of it, but I also, um, I really hate it as well. And I, I lose hours and hours and hours to it. But I think that it's, you know, what we're seeing now with media dwindling in the way that it is, print press, you know, if you ask anyone under the age of 30, they don't buy magazines anymore. They don't have the love affair with print. They Everything is fast moving and digital. And I think that, you know, our strategy really is talent is media. So when we're working with uh, brands and we're looking at their advertising spend and we're sort of saying don't spend it in the in the traditional ways you know maybe take an advert on we transfer because that's an amazing creative community there but really talent is media somebody like Rochelle Humes has got millions of followers and created a really authentic engaged community that I just don't think is comparable to any media outlet out there at the moment and so I think when we think about social media and the role of social media for our talent, because our our business is split between brands and talent and the talent that we represent, we're almost business partners Mm. with, right? So we're helping those talents launch their own brands. Um, And the role for social media and the direct conversations that they can have with their community and their consumers are incredibly important. And it's a real kind of instant litmus test to see whether something works or not. We are so nimble when it comes to our strategy. We write our strategies, we question them, we rip them up if they're not working, and we'll constantly look for guidance from communities and fans of brands and we'll just pivot if we need to left a bit, right a bit. You know, there's no just because the client signed it off, we have to execute on that. Everything is changing all of the time forever. That's, I can't claim that. That's from Succession, Logan Roy, but it's true. Great show. And so you have to you have to look at social media as an incredibly important tool because it's it's instant. I feel like, you know, I had a conversation with a magazine editor just this morning about and they're a weekly magazine and we're doing something with them that is happening on a Wednesday. They don't go to press until the Saturday. By the time it comes out on the Monday, it's done. So we have to kind of go back and have this whole sort of digital strategy. So, yeah, I mean, I think used in the right way, social media is incredibly effective. It's the first thing that when we have brand conversations who want to work with our talent, the first, you know, almost before anything else, it's, you know, how many followers has someone got? Yeah, I think it's, it's I think it's sort of vital, but I, I have a love-hate relationship with it, as I, I suppose quite a lot of people do. And I think... One of the things that since we're talking about social media is that the talent on there and the media on there, it exists as a platform where you can kind of say more or less whatever you want and then it exists on the platforms forever. 
So you've got this scenario where now people can go back, see everything that you've ever talked about, and it has created what the market, I suppose, and, and the audience is called cancel culture. And this is, I'm sure, something that you're familiar with and something that anyone that works within the realms of PR has to deal with. A, what is your opinion on cancel culture? And But then B, do you feel like it's something that brands can come back from um, and almost rescue? I think it's really important now to acknowledge the power is now, it's kind of a whole paradigm shift. Whereas before the power was in the brands or the talent kind of just projecting what the ideals were or projecting a narrative. And now consumers and individuals can challenge that and they can call out brands and go, I wasn't happy with this campaign because it didn't feel inclusive or I I wasn't happy with what you said in that way because actually it, it felt pejorative. It's it's a dialogue. And I think it's really important to embrace that because some of the biggest cultural shifts in this in our time has happened because there's we've been empowered to have a voice and, and the community have been able to sort of mobilize change through social media. So I think that's important. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that people make mistakes. Brands might do something wrong. Talent might say something five years ago, 10 years ago, that actually they don't stand by anymore. And I do think that we should, as a society, give people space to make mistakes and recover for them and to to own them. And I think when people do that really well and go, actually, this has happened, we've reviewed it, it shouldn't have, and here's what we're doing differently. I think that can also be really powerful for brands. And Victoria's Secret is a really great example of that, actually. You know, they were part of a whole world that perhaps maybe people didn't think they could come back from. And actually, the fact that they owned it and said, this has happened, we've, we, we don't stand by those things anymore or we realize and we've learned and evolved let please change please come on this journey with us and I think that's that's also important so I think cancel culture is is tough and it's something that scares us (laughs) regularly Liz and I were like in the bunker trying to preempt a whole potential council Mm. situation with a client and we were we were you know we were shit scared but you've just got to own you've got to own things you've got to if you're putting something out there you have to sense check. And I think that's really important to have that sense of ownership and responsibility. And I think it's important that people take that rather than it being a negative, but as a as a positive step in the right direction. I agree. And I think there's, as, as part of that, there's part of the battle is deciding what to say, what not to say, at what given point as well, depending on what's going on in culture in the news, so be it. One of the things that you know we've discussed multiple times is when something happens and brands are, are making the decision as to whether they should weigh in on a given topic or whether it's the, their place to be able to to give their opinion or to hop in. And you know, there's been multiple instances where it can feel like a brand is essentially jumping on a bandwagon and and using whatever event has happened as a bit of a as a as a place to signpost or even virtue signal. Liz, do you feel like there are instances where brands shouldn't get involved? And if so, how do you make that judgment call? I mean, it's case by case. I, I, I go by everything Jordan just said. And I actually think now more than ever, podcasts like How to Fail and clients that we've got that really have made careers out of turning no's into yeses is it is it's never been more acceptable to fuck up and try again and in fact that's 
what one of our guests on our podcast said to her was showing up. It's failing and trying again and trying again and trying again. And in that, you know, there's no sort of defined amount of times that you can try again and, and, and fail. I feel like there are loads and loads of brands who are still getting it wrong and who are clumsy. And I think that probably not being advised well, but also I think that in Jordan has perhaps, you know, got a different perspective or, or would agree with me, I don't know. But the whole Black Lives Matter movement, let's use that as a as an example. We look after Clara Ampho, who was so brave and raw and real in the day after that terrible, terrible, terrible thing happened. She went live on Radio 1 and broke down because she's human, because she's a black woman, because she was angry and upset. And instead of Radio 1 and the producers going, oh, shit, 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 this is unravelling, get someone else, they let it play out. And she didn't even really know what was happening then. She didn't feel brave. She just was being authentic. And in being authentic, she spoke on behalf of millions of other people that would never have been able to have a platform that big or find their voice and didn't even know they were upset. She actually sat with it and debated it and was allowed to do that on a national radio station. And I have so much respect for that organisation for letting her do that. And it's created opportunities for her to talk about this subject matter and others on bigger platforms. And, And so I think that that's really one way of, of, of showing up positively. But I do think there have been some brands, and I'm not going to name and shame, but I think this whole this whole diversity inclusivity thing that Jordan and I have just been doing, just doing for a decade or more, it feels like it's, you know, it feels like everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and everybody's being slightly, not everybody, but some people are being slightly tokenistic. And we are very, very, we have such an incredible open dialogue with our team. And we say, does this feel tokenistic? You know, have we, in all of our casting, um, we ask those questions and we're really open about that. I had a great conversation with um, June Sarpong a few months ago. She's written a brilliant book and she sort of encourages people to be allies and to speak up about things, even if you might not know exactly what you want to say, but just feel like you can speak up and ask questions if you are in a position of privilege. And you might ruffle a few feathers and you might not get it wrong but it's better to speak up about something than just remain silent and not use that opportunity um so yeah long-winded way of saying i do think brands are still quite clumsy on certain issues but i also would encourage them to be braver or seek counsel there are so many agencies jordan's friend actually has set up an agency advising brands about how to kind of work with creatives that are you know, normally have to kind of really sell themselves a bit, a bit more. Do you want to, do you want to speak about that, Jordan? Yes, yes. Um, so my friend is the founder of um, a company called They Gather, which is about connecting brands to inclusive production teams. So whether that's from the LBGTQ plus community or through minority groups, it's all about making sure that diversity is actually reflected behind the scenes as much as it is in front of the lens. But I'd also just add to your point, Liz, around brands, when they can jump on things and and when it's sort of not appropriate. I think a lot of brands on International Women's Day, as an example, like to jump on, but actually they're not, in terms of their practices, 
being very supportive of women. And I'll give you an example from a talent perspective. We had a jewellery brand come to us for a talent and go, oh, we want you as part of this International Women's Day podcast and we want you to do this and that. And to be honest, it was like a veiled commercial deal, but it was unpaid. But anyway, the talent really wanted to do it because they bought into the brands. But when they actually showed up on the day, they then wanted them to do a whole campaign. It was shooting jewellery and all these other places that just didn't reflect the podcast. And so I think if you're going to do an activation to align with International Women's Day, the first thing you need to do is value the women that you are asking to be part of the campaign. And if it is a campaign, you need to pay them because that's what International Women's about. It's about closing the pay cap. It's about people being represented and paid fairly and being treated in an equitable way. So if you're a brand trying to be visible, but then you don't want to behave in an equitable way, then it it doesn't make sense. And I think that for me is a mandate across the board. So whether you're jumping in about violence against women or racism or, or, or any of those kind of key trigger points is, well, what are you doing as a company day to day without this moment? What are you doing as a company to support the team and the people and the communities that you're now jumping on? And if you're not doing anything, and then if you're not prepared to go beyond just a statement or a black square, then politely step aside because there are plenty of companies and people that are prepared to do the work and so I think that should be the litmus test what are you actually doing behind the scenes so with your experience working with global brands you've you've mentioned some of the brands that you work with in Victoria's Secret Good American and Skims but how would a smaller brand apply a cultural strategy for example I know that you work with people like Charlie Howard and a beauty brand Squish how would you approach these I suppose in some way smaller strategies to ensure growth and that you're still having a cultural impact well First of all, it's not the size of the business that attracts us at all. And in fact, in the early years, we would always kind of love and cherish the opportunity to work with brands from the get-go, like literally blank sheet of paper. We saw something in Charlie maybe five or six years ago that really moved us and we wanted to use our network and the power of our platform to help her tell her story, which if anybody doesn't know is is that she was bullied out of the modeling industry for actually being too big and then too small and then too big and then too small and had a a really sort of toxic relationship with that industry and became very cross about it. And and she's very articulate. She's, you know, author of three or, or, or more books now, but she wrote an open letter about how it made her feel and the effect on her mental health. And a newspaper outlet picked it up and she was on the cover of a magazine, but there was so much more to her than that. And we wanted to really kind of help her achieve her dream of being a body positivity activist. And at that time, you know, now there's quite a few big names in America, but there there was nobody on this side of the Atlantic that was even talking about those conversations. They were so sort of terrified about what the fashion industry might do. Would they work again? So really it's a story, you know, it is a story that that moves and motivates us. So you do not have to be a big brand to work with us. You just have to share the, the attributes that we've got. And it gives us so much pleasure to give 
give back on a, a smaller scale. We work with Movember, who are actually quite a big charity, but really were quite misunderstood, I think, in terms of it's that charity where once a year in November, people put a moustache on, but no one really knows why. And actually sort of digging into, you know, the the charity and the amazing work they do all year round has been such a, a privilege to kind of share. So yeah, we, we, we work with small brands, we work with medium sized brands, we work with big brands, we sort of inherit them you know, when they're really, really famous and in need of a bit of transformation, we inherit some and create some. And that's the fantastic thing with us is we've gone from working for other people, inheriting the thing and then having to PR it. And I used to be a journalist and, you know, trying to pitch something in that you don't believe in. I've had journalists snore, like actually snore down the phone to me. Jordan's had similar experiences. So to be able to have a seat at the table and sit with our clients who are business partners and go, okay, you've had a brilliant idea. We've got this sort of marketing and brand building experience. And we think if you do it like this, that's going to be better. The fact that we can contribute in that way and then work together on it. And then the the sort of amplification, the PR bit at the end just becomes such a dream because we've had a role in creating the thing that we're we're then talking about. So yeah, I I don't want to sort of misrepresent that we we only look after or work with big brands because that that is not the case at all. We've Laura Jackson's another luminous example who Jordan's done a phenomenal job with over the last sort of decade where she's gone from telepresenter to now founder of her third business, which has only just launched and in three months has broken all records, has had incredible investment and Vogue have just called it net porter for the home. And she's kind of democratizing the whole world of interiors and art. You know how that sort of stuffy world where if you haven't got loads of money, then you can't play. And she's just sort of flipped that on its head. And so that was a seedling of an idea that Jordan and and Laura had been working on and talking about for a year before it sort of came to fruition. So actually some of those ones where we've been really, really involved, because, you know, we're involved in Victoria's Secret, but let's, we haven't got a seat at the board. But on the smaller side, when we can have those really kind of like value-add experiences, it's almost more rewarding when they come to fruition and to hear clients kind of go, I really feel legit now. I feel like I I deserve to be here. That is like some of our best work. It really matters to us, you know, that we've that we've contributed to somebody else's success. Like that's what we're here for. And and Jordan, what are those traits that you look for in, in your clients that you or that you want to align with in your ideal client and brand relationship? Yeah, I mean I would say Certainly in Laura and Charlie's case and and Clara Ampho as well, it's really wanting to show up for underrepresented groups and tribes. So in Laura's case, it was really wanting to show up and build a community for people who, as Liz kind of pointed out, had traditionally been alienated from the interior space um so kind of democratizing and creating access the same for charlie was about the fact that she wanted to to create more visibility on all different types of women and remove the stigma from flaws which is what swish is all about it's about celebrating your inverted commas flaws because actually we've been trained to think stretch marks and scarring and all of these things are are kind of terrible flaws but actually they're just part of the fabric of who we are and actually when you reframe that and you own who you are 
all of a sudden there's a lot more to love and like. And the same for Clara. I mean, her her mission and what she wanted to do with us has evolved really. It, but initially it was really about creating visibility on her work as a broadcaster, but actually in turn really leaning into passions and things that she felt passionate about and were important to her, she's also become the voice for so many kind of underrepresented sort of young women. And, and you know, we realised that through a partnership we did with Barbie, which when she was honoured with kind of this Shiro accolade where Barbie had created a Barbie in her likeness. And it was really about, to Liz's earlier point, you can't be what you can't see. And Clara, just in showing up, in her own authentic self every day is allowing millions of other little Claras going, I can have a seat at the table. So I think the red thread between all of our clients are people who wanting to contribute in a way that makes other people feel seen. And that can be in, in whatever guise, that can be like Liz had mentioned with Movember, with kind of really tackling male mental health. And for a cultural casting, we cast people like Getz and Ashley Waters and Royal Blood because we wanted different kind of men to see themselves from perhaps what they had been traditionally presented with. And so it's really, in a way, without realising it, like we want to show up for the underdogs and we want to show up for people who have got something to say to sort of further on our kind of human experience and, and make people feel better about who they are and what they do and, and what space they, they occupy in culture. So what responsibility do you feel that brands hold in reflecting and impacting culture? And are there any brands that you would like to shout out that you think are doing it really well or you think are being very proactive about it? So I think brands are almost the modern day gatekeepers. How we learn in our formative years about who we are and and how we fit in society quite often is dictated by brands. So it's kind of what we're seeing in the magazines, what we're seeing on TV, the sort of the adverts. So it's integral to our brand, certainly, but I think there is a huge responsibility on brands more generally to sort of reflect all different facets of life because that's how our children and the people coming up, you know, that's how that they measure themselves. I remember growing up, never really seeing people like me on TV, apart from June Sarpong, bless her heart. Um, But there was not very many people like me, certainly from an advertising in beauty and fashion. And so I grew up, spent the majority of my, my life, actually, really feeling like I didn't fit in, really feeling like... I wasn't represented and therefore I wasn't beautiful enough or I wasn't desirable enough because that that was essentially what was projected back to me. That's what was always constantly being reinforced by everything I see. So I think brands underestimate the, the huge impact that they have in people feeling valued and people feeling represented and that's that's incredibly important and there's no reason not to is the thing it's actually that there's no reason not to to represent so I think there's a huge responsibility there and I think the brands that are doing it well well we've mentioned Good American and Skims but the reason why they're important is because they absolutely changed the landscape and change the game really when it comes to sort of representing different sizes. It was always kind of 
you'd have the main campaign and then you'd go on e-com and then potentially you would see some different sized women who would perhaps reflect the the largest sort of sizing. Whereas for them, they reversed that. It was very much putting all of the inclusive sizing at the forefront of their campaigns. And then you've now seen so many brands adopt that behavior because they've realized not only sort of diversity in color, but diversity in shape and form it's hugely commercial business. People want to see that sort of spectrum. So they do it really well. And I would say also um, Nike, who's not a client of ours, but we do a lot of work with them through our client, Irene Agabotin. They do it really well. I absolutely loved their um, campaign where they were showing women, you know, pregnant and breastfeeding and that kind of thing felt really emotive. It, it meant something. And as a woman who's kind of had three pregnancies um to sort of see kind of women being powered and powerful in that narrative was beautiful and and that's that's when brands are using their platforms you know in a really meaningful way because you take away something from that and you go wow like i feel inspired Hmm. those are some really good examples so guys i've got one final question for you i'm actually going to ask both of you um and it's the same question, but Liz, we'll start. We'll start with you first, if that's okay. What one quality do you see within yourself that you feel without it you wouldn't succeed? I wish I could answer on behalf of Jordan and she on behalf of me, but I, I guess we need to be more American and more confident. I, th- I think determination for me. I think that I have never been handed anything. I haven't been given any opportunity. I didn't get a loan to start my first business. I was a single parent of four young children for a long time without any sort of financial support. And I had my own business and I grew my own business. And now I have a wonderful partner, both in business and and in life. And that sort of, you know, support system around me, but I've still never lost that determination, which I think was sort of, you know, I had a grandmother who worked, which was so sort of rare. And my mother's work ethic was kind of really ingrained into me. Jordan and I sort of share that actually. But I I am still so determined. I don't rest on my laurels. I don't get complacent. Um, What One thing, if I could add to that, I guess it would be resilience and determination. In the pandemic, and I don't mind admitting this, there was definitely a moment where we were kind of looking at our finances going, it's two months till lights out. It's two months until, and we were on pay freezes. We kind of, we had put people on furlough. We had made one person redundant because we had to, but I was never afraid. I was kind of just, I got this sort of fire in my belly that I got when I was pregnant with my first son. When I was pregnant with my first son, I put my um, card in the cash machine and it said insufficient funds. And I was like, okay. And you just like hustle. So determination and resilience, you know, whether we are doing well, which we are doing, we've had the best year that we've ever had in the 13 years that Jordan and I have been working together. But it just, if anything, makes me want to try harder and drive forward. So, yeah, I I think sort of determination and resilience for me. I know that's two, but I can't decide on one. They both sort of mean the same thing anyway. And Jordan, uh, the same question. What one quality do you see within yourself that without you feel you wouldn't succeed? So I've got two as well, because why not? Um, So my first, I think, 
to be honest, Liz has sort of captured a lot of what I would say, but if I'm going to choose something different, my first would be empathy because I think I really lead with my heart. I really, really care. That kind of goes into sort of, particularly when you're working with talent and business founders, you have to really care and have share the same sort of passion and values as they do because it's all on the line. And I really kind of empathise with with that. And, and that's certainly how I kind of lead and work and with a team as well, just really want to lead with heart and let people know that I'm there for them as sort of individuals beyond just uh, as a boss, I guess. And, and I think that speaks to some of the campaigns and things that we do because we want to lead with with our heart and we really want to we really want to make a difference not just because there's commercial gains but because we know it matters to people and then my other one is optimism because like every week I get excited about starting again it feels like every every week for me particularly it's like every Monday feels like an opportunity to reset and open up a whole new world and I get a little bit overwhelmed by the scale of opportunity that's available to all of us because we've all got it right here. We've all got it right here at the sort of like tip of our fingers. We've got access to the internet. We've got access to social media. We could kind of change the world in a blink of an eye. And I and I just find that so, so exciting. So even when we were going through like the shittest of times with with COVID and, and really feeling like, oh my God, our, our backs are against the wall. There was always a part of me that was looking for the kind of the cracks of light and going, even if we change a different shape, even if we come out of this completely different we're still going to come out of this and there's still going to be an opportunity. So yeah, I think empathy and optimism is is how I would describe myself. If I can't be determined and resilient. Well, what a combination, <laughs> the four together. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us on the socials in the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. 